He's from 2 Samuel, chapter 12, 1 to 15. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel." Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. It would be great to keep your Bible open as we look at this passage, but let me pray uh, that God might guide us through it. Uh, Dear Lord, as we come to your word now, help me to speak faithfully to it. I pray that we might recognise and embrace your patience and mercy and grace. Amen. We all experience times in life where we are just crushed with guilt. You know, we feel our behaviour is so bad and so outrageous that we cannot imagine that anyone would ever forgive us. Or perhaps we feel we've just done it so many times. You know, we've done it, we've said sorry, we did it again, we said sorry, we've done it again, we said sorry. And you just get to a point where you think, surely at this point, my, my sin is just unforgivable. Yeah, we hear the words of Jesus, you know, how often should you forgive? Seven times, 70. But we just don't believe that that is actually possible when it comes to our sin. Uh, If you can relate to those feelings of hopelessness and guilt and rejection, then this passage will give you relief beyond words. Because if God is willing to forgive David after everything he has done, then surely there is hope for us. 
And that's not an invitation uh, to be complacent about our sin, but it is certainly a huge relief. Uh, And it allows us to come before God uh, humbled, uh, perhaps broken, but also thankful. So today our account begins with the prophet Nathan coming to visit David. And as a prophet, his job was to communicate God's word. So sometimes that was a word of encouragement and sometimes it was a word of rebuke. And so he comes to David with this story about two men. Uh, One has vast tracts of land and sheep and cattle to go with it and the other has almost nothing. In fact, this poor man's sole possession of any real value is this little ewe lamb that he raises alongside his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. So you get the picture. Uh, This lamb is precious and deeply loved. And as it turns out, delicious. Because this rich man has a guest. And instead of slaughtering one of his own sheep or perhaps, you know, one of his cattle and, you know, with a mushroom sauce or something tasty like that, he sees this ewe lamb and he thinks, perfect. And so he takes it. And when David hears this story, he is absolutely outraged. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. Now, David knows that stealing is not punishable by death. Uh, which is why he then goes on to proclaim the lesser judgment of he's got to pay back four times what he has stolen. But you get the emotion of the moment. Uh, This is not the poor stealing from the poor out of some sense of need or desperation. Uh, This is a guy who has everything. He has all the wealth and all the power, and yet he chooses to take, uh, simply because he can. And so there's this arrogance and callous indifference Uh, That is almost beyond words. And then Nathan says to David, you are the man. You know, God has given David everything. He's taken him from being a shepherd boy to king of Israel. He didn't just deliver David from Saul. He gave David Saul's entire life. Uh, and just as a sort of small curiosity from this passage, you know, it talks about having Saul's wives. That there's no sort of uh, recollection of David ever marrying Saul's wives. So we don't know whether it's literal uh, or perhaps metaphoric, but you get the idea that everything that Saul had as king is now David's. And if that wasn't enough, God would have given him even more. Uh, so David's life exceeds every conceivable expectation. Uh, But there's still this underlying restlessness. I think that's often the lie with sin. Instead of being thankful for what we do have, we fixate on the things we don't have or the things that we can't have. And so the temptation is to ignore God and do what we want because we think we know better. And in the moment, we just don't care. You know, we're so obsessed with what we want that we're no longer willing to sort of see, look and look forward and see the consequences of those choices. You know, we don't look and see how that impacts our relationships or how it impacts our relationship with God. And meanwhile, we're fed this message within our culture that it would almost be immoral uh, to constrain our desires and to deny ourselves. You know, life would be better 
and society would be better, so the message goes, if we just embraced everyone doing what they want. In fact, often the only moral constraint is consent. And so in the eyes of the world, God's way leads to guilt and intolerance, and the world's way leads to freedom and harmony. Uh, because, but of course, we discover very quickly that our individual choices actually have an impact on the world around us. And so often, as individuals, uh, we're motivated by selfishness and self-preservation rather than looking at other people and how they might thrive and succeed. And often, we are guilty of being vindictive and petty and sometimes cruel. And certainly, that was true in this situation. You know, David is so obsessed with Bathsheba and so overwhelmed by his own lust that he just does not see the impact of his choices. You know, David has completely lost his way. You know, it's not like this has just sort of happened as a momentary lapse of reason. Uh, this has been going on for at least, very least, nine months. And we kind of wait for, you know, David's <clears throat> conscience to kick in. Uh, but it just never does. You know, David is God's anointed king, but he has completely lost his way. He's completely stopped looking to God for guidance. And I think most of us can relate with that on at least some level. You know, we're so often good at putting on a good face. You know, life's great, our marriage is great, you know, no struggles with lust or pornography, no infatuation with a co-worker. Everything is good here. And perhaps we can even keep that face for, for a lifetime. Uh, usually not. Usually something happens, doesn't it? It all comes crumbling down. But we certainly do everything in our power to make it look like we are in control. And perhaps we even think we've got away with it. You know, nothing bad happens. So perhaps God isn't really too concerned. And if God isn't too concerned about what I'm doing, then, well, why should I be too concerned. You know, the Apostle Peter writes these words. He says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You know, we hear these words as a word of encouragement, uh, but actually they're written as a word of warning. Don't be complacent about sin. Don't think just because there are no consequences now that God doesn't care. Uh, because God does see, he does care, and he will hold us accountable. And for David, uh, we now come to this moment of reckoning. So looking at verse 9, Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. So David has been so fixated by his desire that he just doesn't see or feel the weight of what's happening. And when it's finally exposed, it's kind of like this fog lifting. You know, all of a sudden he can see this trail of destruction behind him and just the, so, the seeds of destruction going forward. You know, David knew the word of God. He knew the difference between right and wrong, and he knew what God had said about his future. You know, God had made a promise to David that his house would last forever. And yet, despite knowing all of that, uh, David chose to betray God's 
trust. You know, God has committed himself to David, but David has not shown the same faithfulness back. And David's reaction to the story of the rich man kind of seals his own guilt, doesn't it? You know, there is no doubt that he knows the difference between right and wrong, and he knows that he is in the wrong. You know, sin is so often not a rational choice, it's an emotional choice. And that rejection of God and God's word becomes the foundation for every other sin that comes after. You know, so if this rich man uh, deserves to die uh, for stealing another man's lamb, then what does David deserve for stealing another man's wife and then killing her husband? Well, first, David's house will become divided. Verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. You know, David has used violence to cover up his own sin and now violence will characterise his house. And so from here uh, to the end of David's life and then into the line of his family, it'll be characterised by internal conflict and then national conflict and then finally an entire nation divided. Secondly, David committed adultery and humiliated Uriah, and so David is now going to be humiliated. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. He will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel." Uh, That person who is close to David turns out to be his son, Absalom. Uh, Absalom, in uh, 2 Samuel 16, we read, attempts a coup against David uh, to try to take the kingship. David ends up fleeing his palace in Jerusalem and Absalom moves in and literally sets up a tent on the roof of the palace and proceeds to have sex with David's harem. And it's a way of humiliating his father, and establishing his authority. And so as Nathan lays out this future for David, uh, David is cut to the heart. So verse 13, it's brief, but it's significant. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And what we'll discover next week in Psalm 51 is just how deeply David feels his sin. And what's implied in these words is repentance. So he's not just sorry or sorry that he's caught. He genuinely seeks forgiveness and he genuinely seeks to change his behaviour, to turn away from his sin. And so in this wonderful, completely undeserving moment of mercy, God forgives David. Nathan replies, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Yeah, as we look at everything that's going on. We need to recognise the difference between sin and consequence. You know, forgiveness deals with the fundamental problem of how sin impacts relationships. And so when there's forgiveness, that relationship is restored. However, even if a relationship is restored, there are still consequences. Uh, And we see that in life. So it doesn't mean that forgiveness means everything goes back to the way it was. And we see that here. David's relationship with God is restored, but he will bear out the consequences of his choices for his entire life. What we don't see in this passage is God's justice. You know, David deserves to, to die. He deserves to die for adultery, and he deserves to die again 
for murder, uh, that's what the law says. Uh, that's what would be just and fair. So why doesn't God implement that justice? Uh, and the answer comes in Jesus, uh, that God holds that justice for another day. So this is how the Apostle Paul puts it. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So in the Old Testament, a lamb was sacrificed as a substitute for the sins of the people. Uh, So the lamb suffered what the sinner deserves. Uh, But it was only ever symbolic. And it was always looking forward to a time when God would send uh, someone to be a like-for-like substitute. Uh, Literally a human life-for-human life substitute. And he does that in his son, Jesus. And I think there are plenty of people who are pretty offended by that idea that God would allow his son to die on a cross. Uh, But it says something, doesn't it, about the seriousness of sin. Uh, But it also says something about how much God loves us. And so Jesus dies for our sin, but also for the sins of all of humanity, for past, present and for the future. And so in the words of Paul, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. So the journey so far in this passage has been pretty emotionally tumultuous. You know, David has been confronted with his past sin and the devastating punishment that is to come. And at the same time, there's this moment of relief when he recognises his sin, he, he repents, and God is gracious and forgives. And that would be a really, really convenient point to finish this sermon. But there's one more consequence to go. And I think this is the one that we find most confronting. Verse 14. Because by doing this, you've shown utter contempt for God. The son born to you will die. That just doesn't seem fair, does it? You know, that this child, um, in our sort of perception, completely innocent, hasn't contributed anything to this sin, is the one who's going to suffer the consequences of David's decisions and choices. And I don't think there's any really convenient, simple, pithy answer uh, that, you know, frees us from that discomfort. But here's at least a few things to consider that may or may not be helpful. Uh, Firstly, uh, it really would be arrogant and delusional for us to think that we can stand from our position in the universe in judgment of God. Uh, So we do have to come to God's word with a sense of humility. Uh, We don't necessarily get it. uh, We're not necessarily comfortable with it. But if God is God, uh, then we need to to recognise that and to trust him in it. If our faith in God and submission to the lordship of Jesus is subject to God conforming to our expectations, uh, then we're not really submitting to God at all. We're simply recreating God in our own image. You know, God is you know infinitely better place to know the whole picture. And so we do have to trust that he will act fairly and justly. I think secondly... If the consequences of sin 
were only ever mild discomfort, would we ever really recognise the seriousness of our sin? And so in this moment, as we see the awfulness of consequences in the present of what's happened in this, in this situation, it should make us wary and conscious. Well, if this is how God can judge in the present, then we certainly want to make sure that we are not standing against God as he judges us for eternity. And I think number three, we need to keep an eternal perspective on present events. If we view life in the present as the most valuable life that we have, then we feel it's only fair that it is a long and happy and comfortable life. But God's plans are bigger than this life. So if we take our 80-odd years, that's a decent life, versus eternity, uh, then it really doesn't compare, does it? Uh, God's picture of everything, including our lives, is much bigger than the present. And that includes for this child. Uh, God knows this child. God knows his future for this child. It's not the future in this lifetime, but it is still an eternal future. So as we get to the end, uh, if you are someone who struggles to feel the weight of your sin, then the big message of the last couple of weeks is sin is serious. Uh, God sees, God cares, there are consequences, and God will judge. And we need to feel the weight of that. Uh, But if you are someone who feels your sin acutely, uh, if you feel constantly accused and perhaps thoroughly unlovable and you take comfort and hope from what we've read today, you know, that despite all of our sinfulness, despite how unlovable we feel, uh, God still loves us. And we should feel the relief when we repent because we know that God will forgive you know, guilt has a part to play in our life. Guilt helps us to see our sin. It helps us to feel the weight of our sin. But when we repent, we can be confident of forgiveness and then guilt has done its job. And we should be free from that guilt. And even when we face the consequences and continue to face the consequences of our sin, we at least know two things are secure. Our relationship with God is secure And our salvation is secure. So let me pray. Dear Lord, uh, we today pray that you might help us to feel the weight of our sin, uh, but also uh, your love and your offer of forgiveness and mercy when we are willing to recognise our sin and repent. Uh, Lord, we cannot uh, begin to imagine just how gracious and patient you are with us, but we are thank you for, thankful for it. And so, Lord, we pray that we might know that deeply today. Amen.